If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Hey, music lovers. The Cannamom Show podcast, in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars, is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at LampkinGuitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. I'm really, truly honored by having a very important person in the cannabis industry join us today, uh, Mr. Michael Johnson, the CEO of Metric. Thank you for joining. Likewise. Thanks for having me. All right. So we were just, uh, there's a whole bunch of questions that I have, but I, I wanted to start, we were talking before I started uh, uh, recording and, and, and uh, starting the show about just, uh, you know, seed to sale tracking and, and just in general, the way that, um, the way that it's important for government agencies and everything else to get into standardization. And years ago, I used to be in the, in the dispensaries uh, business. So myself and I was a partner, owner, and operator in five different dispensaries. And there was this whole thing that was going on where people were bringing, you know, product in the back, wholesale. Some of it would leave, uh, and then some of it, some of it would stay, and some would get tagged, and some would be put in jars. And uh, as we started progressing, and the industry started progressing, we started meeting with different companies. Uh, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if I should mention the, the different companies, but uh, there's other companies besides yourself. Oh, I'll mention them anyway. Biotrack, THC, MJ Freeway, and all these companies were coming in saying, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And uh, nobody wanted to do that at the time because it takes away from that you know, little side hustle that you do out the back. And I think it's really, really important for our industry to get out of the dark ages and to get out of the gray and to get out of the black and, and, and lift 
its standards. So I'm really grateful for a company like uh, like yours to come around. And, and I know that it's been around for a very long time. So um, I just wanted to understand, first of all, so our audience can, what is metric? What does it do? And then we can dive into a little bit more about your personal uh, history yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so metric is, is the largest provider of cannabis-focused regulatory track and trace solutions. Um, we're in 23 different jurisdictions, 21 states plus Washington, D.C., and Guam. Um, that's all we do. So we provide literally track and trace solutions. Um, we, have, we have no other offerings. We are uh, primarily a, a business that has grown up through the supply chain space. Um, we have, I think, provided something that is fairly unique in terms of uh, closed-loop supply chain, uh, capturing the data, providing visibility, and, and enabling um, not only regulators, which is really how, how the system was designed, but uh, involving or, or allowing all stakeholders, whether you're a dispensary owner uh, or, or some, another software company that provides solutions to the cannabis space, or even somebody that might be just tertiary to the cannabis space, um, what we're able to do is provide these meaningful and actionable insights that help support and kind of create the standards that you mentioned for the regulatory environment uh, and, and for the legal cannabis space. Cool. Uh, let me take a step all the way back and, and try to make it more entertaining for people. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Uh, metric. Or me, me in particular. You, where did you grow uh, up? <laughs> I actually grew up in a lot of different places. Um, I went to four high schools in four states, mostly in the Northeast. And so, um, usually for this conversation, um, I, I just say I'm I'm from Rhode Island. That's where I spent the the, the I guess okay. the most formative years. Um, but I actually graduated um, from uh, from high school in Tampa, Florida, which is where I currently live. Yeah, I thought you were a Florida guy. So you grew up in in the Northeast a little bit, right? Primarily, yes. Uh, and so what kind of childhood did you have? Is that you have brothers, sisters, were your parents together, uh, divorced? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. Um, I love it. Uh, so I, I grew up, my parents, my parents were married. My mom, my mom's died, um, since, but my parents uh, were together the whole time, whole time I was, was growing up. Um, I have an older sister is a half sister. Um, she's from my, um, my, my father's first marriage. Um, and then I have a younger sister as well. Um, we grew up um, in a different way than I think most would. Um, my my father was a, a DJ on the radio. And so we moved around a lot um, every year. I think I lived in 20 places before I was 18. Um, it was an interesting, interesting world. Um, different types of radio stations. Uh, everything from, at the time, Top 40 to... Um, in like oldies radio stations, kind of uh, adult contemporary um, country music radio stations, and so he was he was on the radio, and um, and it was it was interesting. Uh, it was cool when you're young. It's not as cool as you get older to <laughs> to kind of move around all the time. Um, I moved away from my parents um, when I was 16, um, and I moved uh, and lived with um, with my older sister who took care of me um, until I graduated high school. And she she's from she's from the Tampa Bay area. Which is just how I got here. So, was your dad a famous DJ, like a, a, a name that we would know? Is it Howard Stern? No, yeah, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> definitely not. 
Definitely not. Um, I mean, I, I don't I don't know how many um, and there's really probably only a handful of, of household names from DJ's perspective. But yeah, he was in he lived in a lot of different cities. Um, he uh, you know, I think he I think he had a fair amount of success. Um, it's it's just a lot harder on a family to, to kind of move around. And it's not like we moved around like it's not like it would be perfect time. Like I move in the summer and then I start, you know, seventh grade in school. It wasn't like that. Um, we would move you know, in like the middle of February or like the middle of September. Um, and so that's, that's how it worked. It was pretty challenging. Um, I would say the resiliency and um, being able to kind of have that experience certainly been um, meaningful to me. I, I think sometimes not so, not so happy, but certainly been meaningful to me. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm certainly grateful for, for those experiences to help me get to, um, to help me get to where I'm at today. Yeah. You know, people talk about military kids, right? You're moving around, but they don't understand that there's jobs. And, and, and I had brought up Howard Stern's name because I'm a huge Howard Stern fan. I like, I used to sit when I was going to college in in Philly, I used to sit in in school and like miss my classes because I was listening to Howard Stern. And, and then, you know, he told the stories too, many stories. And a lot of DJs that came on his show that, you know, you're Hartford, and all of a sudden, you know, the radio station changes format. So either you, you're in or you're out in the job and like there's no stability. And it's one thing, but I always thought about how does it impact his family, right? So you're, you're that, that guy. We can have yeah. that conversation now because you're not only, as you said, you're not only changing schools like you, at the end of the year, now you're going to go to the new school. You can come in in the middle of the year. And now you have to, you're that new kid that came in in the middle of the year. You have to make friends. You have to build relationships. You have to deal with, you know, the bullies. Oh, you, look at this guy. He came from Rhode Island. He must be snooty or what? you know, all these different things. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just trying to sure. guess how that could have impacted you. Um, so maybe you can in, enlighten yeah, me a little bit. It's tough. Um, and so I, I, I have three children of my own now and I try to um, try and teach them a certain level of kindness, I will tell you, um, and I've told a number of other people um, that they're they're moving kids, especially high school age kids. Um, you don't realize that it just doesn't. When you get to a new school, everybody's not just you know there in open arms. It doesn't work like that. Uh, everybody has their cliques and some kids that they've grown up with for forever. Um, and and I will tell you, you've never felt as lonely as you felt in the lunchroom sitting by yourself as a new kid. Uh, tough. So um, it's definitely, I've experienced it several times. It, it is it is something I pay attention to um, when we're in environments where, you know, somebody's kind of kind of by themselves. A little different when you get older. A lot of people prefer to be by themselves, but um, okay. try, and, try and be mindful of that. Um, it's just a, it's a tough thing, you know? Um, so I definitely... I definitely recommend that um, that you you know to the extent you have children or, or know folks or been through it before uh, or know somebody that's going through it. Um, you know, resiliency is important. Being true to yourself is important um, because it's if you feel like you're the odd one out, you, you know, it's a natural thing to wonder if something's wrong with you. Um, and it's it's generally not. You're just new, and you know they don't know you, and so you feel like a square peg. But um, but it doesn't need to be that way. Uh, and so I mean, getting finding that level of humility and what that means. If you're somebody that, that has the opportunity to have uh, that level of humility for somebody as they, um, you know, as they're experiencing something that's probably challenging for them, you might not see it uh, because people don't generally wear it on their, you know, on their t-shirt that like I'm the new guy and 
you know, I don't know anybody and this is not comfortable for me. Um, you, you really can make a meaningful impression. I remember every, every kid, um, every single time, uh, that, that say, Hey, come sit with us every single time. Um, some of those, some of those guys are, are, uh, our friends, uh, close friends of mine to this day, even though I've moved around different places. That's super cool. Yeah. I, I went to three different high schools too. Uh, and my, I remember going to my, my second high school, I, w- I was in gym class and I'm like, and nobody's really talking to me. Yeah. And there was this beautiful girl in the class. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to see if I can get up and, and, and talk to this girl. And she ended up being my girlfriend. She was like the hottest girl in that class. It was like 10th grade or something like that. So yeah. that's how I made friends with everybody because I had you know balls to walk up and, and talk to this girl. So uh, I, I, um, <laughs> wow. I'm, and I, it I wasn't never, my never mo. I'm not one. really. I wasn't really good at that before. Uh, I, I usually didn't approach uh, people, but I'm like, you know what? I think this is my angle. This is a way in. So that's, that's what I did. I I <laughs> I wish I would have had the uh, wish I would have had the the thought to do that. That would have been perhaps that would have been more effective. But um, that's awesome. Actually, well, we're we're doing a PSA for everybody now. That that's right. That's so right. We can't go back, but we're just all right. So then then the other thing is I. I'm I'm curious about growing up, and, and then you went to your live with your sister, obviously for for having some stability in your life. It and, did, yeah. She took care sense. of me. But were you still? How were you with your parents when when you um, were staying? Was I don't have a relationship with my family um, outside of my older sister, um, and so unfortunately, my mom passed a, a few right. years back. Um, and it, it's just it's difficult. You, you encounter some different experiences, and you know some things as you get older. You realize, and, and as you have children of your own, sometimes um, there's certain relationships, certain behaviors that maybe aren't aren't great or aren't the types of behaviors that you want your children to get exposed to. Um, and so, kind of where we ended up, unfortunately, um, I'm very very close with my older sister. Um, she is she's exceptional, and she is she's an, an amazing. Um, She's an amazing person. Um, she's incredibly selfless for what she did for me. Um, but moreover, um, I mean, she's just she's she's had a huge influence on me as a person. She's somebody I looked up to well before, um, well before I, I I moved in with her. Um, and is somebody that I, I look forward to uh, spending a lot of time with today. She lives in Chicago, actually. But she happens to be here this weekend, so I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah, that's uh, that's unfortunate. I, I, so my parents. This is a, a story I wrote. A, I wrote a book about this, and I talked about this a million times. My parents ended up kicking me out of the house and calling the cops, trying to have me arrested for consuming cannabis. And the irony of it, this, they both consume formulations that we uh, that we make now. But I didn't speak to them for years. But there was a moment m- my dad was in trouble, and there was something that shifted in in my mind that I was like. I need to help, even though we didn't, we weren't even speaking. We weren't even close. And, uh, you know, to go into my, it's not about, you know, this isn't about me and my therapy time. Uh, oh, but there no. was some, there was some abuse. Okay. There was all kinds of things that, uh, that were done. So I, I harbored a lot of resentment, a lot of anger, but basically there was this power that he had through that, that I was able through therapy and all that stuff, let go. And I'm, I speak to my dad every day now and I'm grateful for it because wow he you know how long are they going to be here for so i didn't do it specifically for for them i did it more for me because i wanted to and you know, i've i've uh, an 18 year old daughter i have grandkids now you know all that stuff so 
maybe there's still hope. That's all, that's all I'm putting out there. If, yeah, I'm, you know, you're always hopeful and you always hope that, um, that you're able to make relationships work with folks. And, and, um, you know, therapy is great for, for that kind of thing to help you come to come to conclusion. For me, it's not, um, it's, it's not something that I take lightly, uh, mental health for folks. Um, and, and in many ways, cannabis has been a huge benefit to folks for, as they, um, as they kind of navigate some of the challenges with, you know, some of the struggles in mental health. Um, so I, certainly recommend people find what works best for them. Uh, and I do find therapy meditation generally is, is, um, gets a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a crunchy kind of a, a, a reputation, but meditation for me has been, um, massive. And it doesn't what, what do you do? What kind of meditation? Uh, I use, I use headspace 10 minutes a day and it's, it's easy. And it's, um, you, you don't, uh, somebody said to me that, meditation is like adding like a plant and adding like a drop of water every day. And so when you don't, when I don't do it or something happens, you don't really notice it, but you also notice that you're not quite right. Not, not off, but like just not exactly on. Um, and so, and it takes time to build it back up. So I recommend it to anybody. Uh, I definitely get some people looking at me like you meditate. Yeah. Like you don't have to, you know, wear like a, you know, flower tr or whatever like it, it's it really is incredibly impactful um it was shocking to me how much so um so i would say between meditation um uh therapy uh anybody that's dealing with anything um you you always need somebody to talk to uh yeah. and i'm i'm particularly appreciative of what you see happening in the world and the the destigmatization associated with um, you know, with, with folks that struggle with mental health, um, everybody's anxious at times, everybody is depressed at times, everybody is, you know, some kind of a traumatic experience. Um, you know, everybody has something from their childhood that they need to work out everyone. Um, yeah. so I, I highly recommend it for, for folks. Sounds like it worked out well for you. It's a work yeah. in progress, man. It never ends. It's always like take time on take. And by the way, I had not the best therapists. I probably want like seven different ones. It's, it, so when you find that person really connects with, and I find the ones that I connected with walked in my shoes for like, there's a lot of coaches and a lot of therapists that you get. Uh, I remember I was, I was doing coaching with like Anthony Robbins uh, Institute. And uh, the, before that I had coaches and the coach, like two of them that I had, they weren't, even at the level that I was at that point, they're coaching me and I feel, I felt they didn't walk in my shoes. And if you're going to, if you're going to do relationship coaching and you've never been married or divorced, you know what I'm saying? Like you have to walk in the shoes. You have to feel that, that I'm not it's sure hard to have uh, it's hard to have that level of credibility. I and mean, like a coach, like you mentioned, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, to play football or soccer with some and to play for somebody that's never done it, you know, how can they really it's, relate at that? Ted Lasso, Ted Lasso does it really well. So who knows? I mean, I, big <laughs> believer Ted Lasso. I actually have a, my office over, uh, over my door. I have a, we, we made a believe sign, but it's actually fell down so I can see it. Um, so we have to, <laughs> got to get it back up there. Gets human yeah. in Florida. So yeah. not everything to the wall. Uh, so another question I had for you, uh, you're an accountant. Right. Like you're, is that, I mean, you're, you're obviously CEO and CFO, but I'm just saying the reason why I bring that up is when you're growing up as a kid, like, are you dreaming of, uh, Hey, I want to, you know, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a musician. Oh, you know, I want to be an accountant or yeah. was there something else that you were, uh, thinking about? No, I was accountant all day, every day. <laughs> all the calculator. I um, love numbers, man. This is my favorite yeah. thing. Uh, 
Yeah, no. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of different things that I went through. I didn't really know. And, and when you have kind of the experience that I had in childhood, I had, I mean, you, your, your first, um, it, unless you're Howard Stern, you don't tend to make a lot of money <laughs> as a DJ. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure uh, Ryan Seacrest is doing just fine, but um, <laughs> not, not the guy that's, you know, working the day shift or overnight shift in Wichita. Um, and so you, we didn't really have a lot of money and we lived in some interesting parts of town and some interesting apartments and, you know, uh, so as you grow up, like the number one thing is I don't, I don't want to have these types of struggles. If I have a family, I don't want them to have these types of struggles. And so, um, that was the primary focus. I mean, I, I certainly didn't anticipate for a long time, um, going to college at all. Um, and my, I, I think if my sister didn't stand over top of me, I, I, I may never have. Uh, and so, when I started college, um, I was originally an international business major, um, actually a double major in international business and marketing, in particular, and the focus on international business was Japanese. And so when you go to or J- uh, Japan, but like Japanese, like with the was the language portion. And so um, it's it's actually super weird when you when you start a new school in the middle, like in high school in the middle of the year, you take the classes that are available. There's a lot of classes that are too full. And so foreign language is usually a class you take. And like shockingly, you know, the language that everybody takes, you know, your Spanish or French or whatever, never available. Um, and so uh, one school, actually two schools I was at, Japanese was available. It was one of the only like two available. Um, and so that's kind of where my, uh, I, was, I was pretty interested in the culture at that time. And so that's felt like, hey, if I'm going to go to college, this seems interesting. Um, and, and why not do it? See, it appealed to me. Um, towards the end of the period where you you do kind of your undergraduate classes, um, the 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 kind of the green shoots of the great uh, the great recession started, and so I graduated in two thousand seven, but I just go to school a year longer because of uh, in an account if you're to sit for the CPA exam you have to have certain very specific credits certain number of credits and and so um, I ended up going a little bit longer but. In Florida, the 07-08 recession um, started a little bit earlier, and different parts of Florida started even earlier than that, um, like in Miami, uh, Tampa in particular. And so we started seeing a lot. I mean, I, I was working as bartending at the time, actually. Um, everybody I bartended with was also a mortgage broker, making a ton of money. Um, most of us had multiple houses with, you know, just you, 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 could, you didn't have to be super experienced. I mean, I'm 20... It's like 21 and I look around and I'm bartending with people that, you know, have three condos. Like it didn't, didn't have to be much of a genius to realize something bad's going to happen. Um, and it did. And somebody that I looked up to, I uh, was a couple of years ahead of me in school. was just the kind of guy that you just know is going to take over the world and do anything under the sun. And just one of the most charismatic people I've ever met. And, and to this day, he still is, uh, he's in real estate. Um, but he ended up, um, had a similar similar structure, similar major, a couple years ahead, graduated, couldn't find a job. He ended up selling cell phones in a mall kiosk back when back when people did that. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking, I do not want to sell cell phones in a mall kiosk uh, after I graduate. And it was right around the time that I'd taken um, the prerequisite or the like kind of the undergraduate um, general business accounting courses, which uh, at the University of South Florida, the accounting program is actually pretty good. Um, really, really high uh, CPA pass rate. Um, you know, pretty exceptional for a school that at the time was was a bit middling, certainly improved quite a bit since then, but at the time was a bit middling from a business perspective. Um, and we, I, I 
I can't pretend I was the best student in that class, but I did very well. I got an A in that class and take another accounting class. The second required prereq, it was, um, it was, it was even easier. Um, and the accounting uh, professor at the time said, what's your major? This, I don't, I don't think you're really putting a lot into this and yet seem to be, seem to be doing really well. And, uh, and I said, um, international business and marketing. She's like, well, you know, you can do that with an accounting degree. Right. Um, I was like, yeah, I'm actually a little nervous with, what I start, what I'm starting to see, and kind of what's around the corner, you know, the way the economy's going, and um, she's like, "Well, you'll never, you'll never need a job if you're if you're an accountant." And so it's not, wasn't for the love of accounting, I assure you, um, <laughs> but you grow up and you're 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 looking for more financial stability uh, than than you have. That puts you in a spot where, in the face of potential financial instability and opportunity. To, to kind of to kind of um, protect yourself a bit uh, becomes much more attractive, and so I ended up switching, uh, becoming an accounting major, graduated, uh, got CPA, and started working for PwC out of um, out of college in, in their audit practice, and did a lot of work with transactions as well. Yeah, so we have some similarities. Uh, not on, I was with PW originally on the management consulting side okay. in Philly. Uh, prior to the acquisition merger, whatever you want to call it, yeah. uh, with Coopers, and they shifted me over to the marketing department. But uh, man, want to cut though? I don't know how it was on the audit side, on the accounting side, but man, on the management consulting side, that was uh, that was a whole lesson itself. You want to talk about you know stress and the uh, and favorites and the sitting in the lunchroom and and clicks and all that stuff. Man, I, I had a yeah. lot of it at PwC, so. I don't know if you experienced anything. Similar. Uh, it was, it was, um, <laughs> it was the most fun I never want to have again. I think uh, right. I was there for almost five years. Um, I mean, I, all the, the horror stories in public accounting, sleeping on the floor, bringing, you know, bringing your, uh, bringing your pillow to work. Like these are real stories. Um, it was interesting. I, I actually have a, I have a hearing, uh, significant hearing loss, like 70% of my hearing loss. I wear, actually wear a hearing aid, um, both my ears. And I remember sitting in a, in a big conference room, um, where, where a lot of us worked, if you're working, if anybody's like ever been in consultative practice, if you're on site, you're generally in like the worst conference room in the back corner, the one that has like the mismatched furniture. Um, and that's where you live and you're there for, for me, it's there a couple times more than 24 hours. And I remember I had this manager, she was like five foot, nothing, um, tiny little person, but I mean, what a mouth she, she, uh, she had, she had some, she had a way with words. Um, she, she was very creative with her use of expletives and I remember her yelling at me and I like looked up and I guess she didn't talk to me. I couldn't hear it that well because everything <laughs> kind of just sounded muffled more than anything else. Um, and she's like, don't come back here until you got your ears checked. And I went and I found out I had massive hearing loss. Um, and that was the kind of environment that it was in. I remember yeah. I was in a meeting once and a partner, uh, they, which actually she became a partner. I think she was a partner at the time, but client knocked on her head to see if anything was in there uh, yeah public accounting I, is a grind. It's, a grind. It, it's it's that it at the time was big six when i was there i don't know what is big four three i don't i don't know where they are oh you know what I, you know what i want to ask you were you there uh during the time that uh the pwc guy gave the wrong envelope for the oscar a winner? Yes, I was. <laughs> I, I don't think I've talked to anybody since that was there. I wonder, what was the uh, what was the fallout within uh, PwC after that happened? I'm just so curious. Yeah, it was. It's kind of like um, 
Is it just a big joke? Like you're embarrassed, but like at the same time, I mean, there's, it's a 30,000 person company, you know, there's all like these different stereotypes from corporate culture there. Um, I will tell you that like being a part of PwC was certainly um, meaningful because there's a lot of things culturally that are important, but being a part of my office and then the teams moreover, even deeper than the office um, was, I mean, you just can't. Like that's that's what I remember. You don't really remember the company as much or the firm. It's a firm, they remind firm. you. Firm, firm capitalized firm. <laughs> exactly. Um, they remind you. Uh, but the 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 teams that you're on, uh, those and and the relationships you build are. I I can't put into words like how meaningful they are. Yeah, um, I agree with so. you. The, the the team the team building was was great, and I I, mm-hmm. I still keep in touch with some of the people that I was there in 1998. So it's, uh, it's been a few years. I, but, I uh, have people here that work with me that, that I, I knew, um, from PwC or like, um, there's somebody actually that we have that I tried to recruit to PwC, went to a different firm and I kept up with them. I mean, it's, it's a small world. It's a yeah. very small world. Uh, and like I said, most fun, I, I would recommend it to anyone. I, I'm not going back there, um, but I would recommend it to anyone. I would recommend, I mean, if my children want to go down that path, I, I couldn't get more behind them. They were great so, to me. How did you get into healthcare? Um, so one of my clients actually, and this frequently happens in public accounting, is, is, as you know, um, you get poached from a client. And so um, I had a client and most of my clients were in um, what at the time was called tight. So technology, information, communication, entertainment. And Tampa is not the biggest city. So my clients were like the parent company of Outback Steakhouse, which is called Blumen Brands now, or um, the New York Yankees, actually, which are based in Tampa. Really awesome people. I know the Yankees sometimes don't get the best reputation, but <laughs> being there, uh, kid in New York, three months out of the year, uh, they couldn't have been better to me. They were really uh, wonderful folks. Um, but one of my clients that was consistent was this uh, software company. Uh, called um, at the time was called Sage Software. And Sage is a, a very large multinational, mostly accounting software. I think they have some other platforms now. I'm based in the UK. They were a PwC client and they had acquired uh, a software business that primarily made practice management solutions for a doctor's office. So the software that makes a doctor's office run. And the business through a number of acquisitions, actually the very first one like this, um, it was called the medical manager at the time. It was previously owned by WebMD. And so Sage bought it. And I, I think, as I recall, the assumption was that they were going to turn it into like they were going to kind of meld their accounting software with it. And it just didn't work out well for them. And so they were one of my clients. And the chief accounting officer there, who later became CFO, um, was the most brilliant accounting person, most brilliant leader from a finance perspective that I'd ever met. She was incredible. Um, and they sold the business to a very little known private equity company at the time, which was called Vista Equity Partners, which is now one of the largest uh, software private equity firms in the world. But at the time, I think we were, I want to say we were the 11th acquisition um, that they had made. And so they, they were like every, all of the genius that has gotten them to where they're at, they were, they were learning a lot of those skills, I think, um, as, as part of, as part of that business. And so, um, it had to get renamed something different because it was sold from Sage, but it was one of my clients and I came in and helped set up uh, the accounting team because it was part of a bigger company. And so now it was its own, needed its own. And um, and and the the chief accounting officer, the, her name is Carla, um, gave me gave me a shot and um, I, I will never forget it. So I, I will tell you, I, I, as hard as PwC was, I, I think those first three months were probably actually the hardest of my career. 
she's she's no joke so if if i read correctly you're also in working with a company called is it informed dna do i have that right so yeah genetics company that's another uh it's another area of intersect for us because i am mm-hmm. a ceo of a, a health technology genetics company that's what, oh, wow. that's what we do uh for the cannabis space uh on, that's well, that's my side gig. Uh, this is my primary gig. Okay. And my side gig is CEO of uh, Endocana Health. So uh, that's incredible. I'm like I'm like you guys do genetics to sequencing and the that's what we do. So uh, how how did you get involved in that space? Yeah, it was um so that was I had after I was with um the company uh, that later became called Greenway Health. I got um my first CFO opportunity uh. In, in Nashville and ultimately with, uh, for family, from family reasons, my wife and, and my children, we need to get back. Um, and so I uh, got a great opportunity uh, with Informed DNA um, to be CFO there and to help them ultimately get, get through a really rapid transformation and growth structure. Um, brought in, you know, brought in some different folks, um, ultimately brought in uh, some different investors and were able to sell the business. Um, it's a really, I mean, it's a, fascinating business. Uh, and so we made software and technology primarily for genetic space that helped to interpret um, genetic testing and was uh, a really a catalyst for facilitation of genetic benefits management. And at the time, I don't know how it is now, there was um, over 200,000 genetic tests in the market. And so they all tell you something different. And as you, as you probably know, um, in your world, like uh, running genetic tests today is not necessarily a conclusive thing because the science is always changing. You're learning more about the, the genome sequence and you're learning more about um, what, what each gene does. You're learning more about um, proteins that can affect genes. I used to give, um, we had, we had a, uh, one of the, the founder actually, um, Dr. Rebecca Sutton, I would give her the hardest time, like, but explain the epigenetics. And it's like just now getting deeper into epigenetics. Um, just I, I've never been surrounded by so many truly brilliant scientists, um, really amazing people. Uh, the company had over a 90 employee MPS score. These people, like they couldn't have been happier. It was amazing. Yeah. These genetic experts um, just really doing positive things to, to transform lives. Um, a lot of times when folks get a genetic test or, or need to have a genetic test conversation, it's because of the cancer diagnosis, diagnosis um, more than one third of the time. And so the ability to provide meaningful insights, to be able to help them via technology, get to the best treatment plan and the best treatment options. Um, it's, it, it's not, I'm, I certainly don't, don't mistake myself for anybody that's, um, you know, that's, that's in the, in the medical space providing that, that really important empathic care. Um, but to be a part or, or at least be one of the tools um, is, is something that is hugely meaningful. Yeah, and no, I, I appreciate you saying that. And you're absolutely right. I mean, right nowadays, nowadays you're using also machine learning to start making these inferences. And then there's also something called polygenic risk scores. So now you're able to get, you know, hundreds of thousands of genes with thousands of people in a cohort, and you can create a score that predicts the outcome, may predict the outcome, epigenetic outcome, but you yeah. can take action on it. And that's what people don't understand. Like, well, what do you mean? My DNA is fixed. Well, yeah, but the expression of it is not. And if you don't know that about yourself, uh, you know, there's nothing. You're just driving. You're you're driving an old school map from uh, from yeah. LA to Kentucky instead of using your GPS. So it's interesting. You do. I mean, twenty three and Me 
two years ago versus two years from now, you're going to get a different result. And some and people don't. That's like that's super shocking to people. Um, and it's 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 just so early. I mean, the human genome was sequenced only 20 years ago. Right. Right. It's so early in this process. Um, well, and and like and cannabis too. Like like this is the thing. We're we're it's sort of there's a parallel. And and, and just going back to to metric, uh, there's a parallel because. In 1992, we discovered the endocannabinoid system. I talk to healthcare professionals now; they've never heard of the endocannabinoid system. Like, how can that even be? You're you're a healthcare professional. You're supposed to know there's an endocrine. So, we're 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 all pioneers in something that's so so new. And 20, hopefully 20, you know, 30 years from now, this is going to be you know standard practice that everybody's doing. So. Let's let's accelerate this uh, forward a little bit. Metric. How how did you get involved? Or were you working with John Wells, or like how did that all come about with the with your? Uh, yeah. Um, so the the Tampa Bay area is not it's not exactly Silicon Valley, and so you tend to know all the software businesses that are here, and, and it, it actually is in the last handful of years has really blown up quite a bit in cybersecurity, and we've got some really exceptional, wonderful businesses that are that are now growing here. Um, but the, but you tend to know who they are. Um, you tend to be able to look them up pretty easily. I came across a business, um, in very indirectly, uh, and it's based in, it was based in Lakeland, Florida. Lakeland, um, for folks that don't know, um, is this little town kind of halfway between Tampa and Orlando. Um, and it's home to, there's a lot of, a lot of farmland, a lot of distribution centers, um, probably some Florida man stories. Uh, and it's, it's just not, not generally like a lot of agriculture, not generally where you, where you would think, um, you know, a, a software company would be, although there's actually a couple here now, which is interesting. Um, and so I came across Jeff, um, Jeff Wells is uh, a wonderful human being. He's been at this for, um, over 30 years now. So metric is really kind of a 30 year old startup. Yeah. And so his original, um, original business at a college for him was building, uh, kind of software that helped manage, um, supply chains, uh, and generally food processing, um, and agriculture. And so the first one was actually, uh, a frozen shrimp packing facility. They would buy frozen shrimp and break it apart and bread it and, uh, you know, package it, ultimately sold that. Uh, he he was a part of, of building the software for that business and was ultimately sold to Schwann's. And so from there, he started building all these different things and um, grew quite a bit in terms of uh, his understanding of the supply chain space in the late 90s, early 2000s. He became kind of kind of started hitting uh, maybe roadblock isn't the best word, but started hitting hitting some some pushback from folks um, because his, his system didn't integrate with RFID and RFID is ubiquitous in the supply chain. Uh, Walmart, largest retailer in the United States, uh, there's no packages that run through any Walmart that don't have an RFID tag on them so that they can wirelessly track everything. And he didn't know a lot about it, but he proceeded to learn everything he could about it. Spent a lot of time at the University of Florida, Georgia Tech, uh, worked actually with in Walmart's initial uh, foray into trying to bring RFID to their supply chain. Spent a lot of time with Motorola, Hussman, a um, number of different folks. And we, to this day, hold uh, 10 patents on um, the use and the application of RFID for different purposes. Um, Jeff's been a, a contributor to a number of other uh, patents with some of those businesses as well. Um, and so that gave way to the development of um, of some of his software that was kind of repurposed. And he built a number of platforms. Um, one was called Agware for, for ag 
um, did a business called CargoCast, which later spun out for yeah, like Air Cargo uh, that leveraged RFID technology and a couple other businesses. Um, in when Colorado passed uh, the first uh, uh, the first medical uh, cannabis legislation, they required track and trace. Um, and they had, at that time, the way at least the way I understand the story, I wasn't here at the time. They um, they had an RFP for this system. Now, no one ever built this before. And um, somebody that Jeff knew at Motorola reached out to him and let him know that there's an RFP that they looked at that they think's interesting, but they can't touch it because it's cannabis. And so Jeff is Jeff is like, well, I don't know if I should be touching it either. Um, but he's the, the nicest guy you've ever met. And um, so he, he agreed to have the conversation and ultimately spend time in Colorado uh, and build build a platform. And initially, I think, and I think a lot of people still think that the initial platform was built for uh, managing strawberries at Red. Um, it wasn't. This is the the metric platform is actually built from scratch for cannabis, but that doesn't mean that most of his experience wasn't, you know, in other supply chains, including strawberries. Um, and so they they liked RFID at the time, less so for the wireless functionality, um, which is a little bit confusing to me still, but <laughs> nevertheless, um, they cared about the anti-counterfeit mechanism for it. And so it's a lot harder to counterfeit a tag if you have to also uh, counterfeit an RFID inlay with the exact same 16 character unique identifier. Um, and so they built this system. Um, a lot of it was kind of kind of moved around and borrowed and rebuilt and a lot of different things to get uh, uh, Colorado off the ground. And ultimately, um, at the time, the primary focus for metric was making the government happy at all costs. And, and a lot of those costs, frankly, were, um, you know, were, were, were the cost of not paying close attention to, you know, the emergent third-party integrators, sometimes to the industry, um, sometimes other stakeholders. Um, but that's what that's what they wanted, and that's how that's how the the system was born. And it grew and grew and grew. Um, and ultimately, we're we're now the largest. Um, we're uh, almost twice as large as our competitors combined. Um, and I and I think that's primarily attributable to Jeff's laser focus at that time. Uh, I would say since I've come into the fold, we flipped metric quite a bit where metric was, you know, the we are 100 percent, whatever the government says. If anybody else needs anything, they can go through the government. We'll, we'll build what they need um, and we'll uh, and, 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 and we'll make sure that the product is as accurate as possible, um, which frankly came and has come at the expense of performance um, and, at, and at the expense of some features that I think are pretty important. So we spent the last six to nine months. Uh, transforming metric, bringing in a number of additional leaders. Um, the majority of our leadership team has either been in their role or is new to metric in the last 12 months. Um, we've very much shifted our focus to um, emphasize the customer experience. Um, we have a number of, uh, of, of new initiatives in place that are, many are led by our new CTO, Sam Peterson, has been in the role for a handful of months, um, really focused on performance, really focused on usability, um, really focused on making metric, which I think has been described by many as a black box into uh into a, a transparent um partner to every stakeholder in the industry ultimately to produce frictionless compliance yeah i i i think i said john wells i meant jeff wells i don't know so we'll edit that out well, he wouldn't if he obviously wouldn't he wouldn't be bothered. <laughs> he, he really um, is nicest like the best human being i, I mean i i cannot i've never met i've met some really incredible people i've been very fortunate in my life I've never met a more generous, kind, caring human being than Jeff Wells. 
that, that that's amazing. That's, that's so that's a good to hear, especially uh, in the cannabis space. Um, twenty is it twenty three states in Metro? Twenty three jurisdictions: Washington D.C. and yeah, D.C. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm it, man. I have so many questions about this because um, ideally, what I would like to have happen because we and this isn't you know this isn't a business conversation between you and me but i'm just gonna i'm just gonna try to use this as, as an analogy so we have this dna testing uh, to help guide people to a personalized experience of the cannabis use mm-hmm. so they can avoid you know adverse effects and all that stuff but here's the challenge in in my business the challenge in my business is that grandma mary uh, goes to a dispensary in california i'm, I'm in la but she can't get the same product in Pennsylvania or something like that, uh, or a different state. I, I don't remember all the metric states right yeah. now, but wouldn't it be wouldn't be nice if metric had a, a and I, you do have an API, but it wouldn't be nice if we can integrate and enforce from the state level. Say, okay, testing is done exactly the same way everywhere. All the different states who have cannabis are testing for terpenes, cannabinoids, heavy metals, everything else. Now we can get an equivalent of a product that we get in California. Here's something similar. Maybe it's not exactly the same brand. We don't care what it is, but it has the same chemical variety, chemical makeup uh, there. And now you can guide people so they have a little bit more transparency into the products they're getting. And I know that's not really your main responsibility. You're just tracking the products and displaying them. But because you have these government relationships, is there any type of influence or any type of communication you can have back to those agencies to say, hey, maybe there's a way we can all get together and, and try to standardize. Uh, even the federal government won't do anything right now, but maybe we can uh, take some initiative because we have some influence. Yeah, that's um, it's kind of like you're in our roadmap. So <laughs> as we talk about opportunities to provide better customer experience and in and oper- and, and ways that we can um we can use the reach of metric to be beneficial to the industry. Uh, paying attention to the genetic makeup um, is really critical because when you look at, I mean, look at the Cosmic Crisp in, in Washington State, the apple. Right? That's a patented genetic, uh, genetic, uh, I believe, sequence because I believe it's genetically modified. Um, you can't patent uh, cannabis. You can't patent like your special strain. And there's a lot of folks. I mean, tremendous. I've met some incredible people. Um, uh, most recently, actually, I was at a was at a tissue facility in California two weeks ago, and I mean, what these folks are doing, um, and and frankly, what you're doing uh, in terms of getting deep into the genetic makeup and understanding kind of what this means, what the effects are, um, this is this is the information that's going to be valuable for folks as cannabis comes more mainstream, as folks are using it as more of a precision medicine, which is. Uh, a very uh, a very hot jargony uh, term right now in in the healthcare space, um, but precision medicine certainly applies to cannabis as well. Whether you're using it recreationally or using it medicinally, um, getting a very specific outcome uh, is meaningful, and it's certainly going to help uh, grow the brands, and it's certainly going to help mature the industry as we grow through that. So uh, we paid very close attention. We've had actually had a lot of um, conversations. Uh, with a few of our state stakeholders in particular that are very interested in protecting the small farmers and are very interested in protecting folks that um, feel like they've built this strain up and, you know, they want to protect it with their lives because, um, you know, one strain might appear and then all of a sudden a couple of those plants disappear. Um, 
It's a lot harder to do that when they have a metric tag on them, but sometimes they disappear and then they show up a string, you know, somebody's life work shows up somewhere else. That's, that's a horrible experience. So yeah. we want to make yeah. sure we're doing what we can to provide. I mean, we're obviously not the U.S. patent office, um, but, but if we can create an infrastructure to where folks um, can have more comfort um, about what they, what their creation is, about what they put together um, and about what it can be for them. I think that's huge. Um, I think to your point on the way the states work together, um, I don't know how influential we are. We certainly like to try to be, but um, certainly not not the not as. Well, I mean, we're we're the we're the customer, we're the vendor of the state, and so right, we want right. to steer them in the best direction we can. But um, it, it's 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 not not necessarily the type of relationship where we can say like you should change your the law to say this. Um, but we do find increasing value in being able to highlight the differences in one state versus another and helping them to see um, that the operators that are that are trying to be successful, that are trying to do things the right way, they frequently participate in multiple states. And so some of the some of the regulations are really close together, but they're just off enough to where that changes the process, yeah. creates inefficiencies. And so I don't I don't know where we end up with federal legalization. Um, but if metric can do its part to help facilitate um, perhaps future interstate commerce, um, and, and certainly perhaps um, the maturity of the of the industry in the states in a in a safe and reliable way um, from a public health perspective. Uh, then we want to do that, and so we we're active in that. Um, I, I think that's a little bit new to us as part of kind of the the shift we've had yeah. uh, over the past year in focusing on the customer experience because we realize this is you know, maintaining. Maintaining the rules and regulations for 23 jurisdictions, and sometimes we actually are, we, we have relationships with folks in, in other states, so we, we manage quite a few more than just 23. Um, it, it's, it's really hard for us, and we're the experts at it. Uh, it's, it's incredibly challenging if you're an operator in, in multiple states, and, right. and even if you're somebody that develops software um, in, in some of the other states. Well, that's, that's something that we definitely should uh, partner on, because we have a patent uh, on determining personalized endocannabinoids and genotypes and associated recommendations through a user interface, graphical wow. user interface. So Incredible. by by combining our technologies together, I think we can both help and raise this industry. And I'm, I'm so glad. Point. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk, talk more. <laughs> I, I'm just so glad that you even think in that way because we've had these conversations years and years ago and the, the answer was always like, uh, you know, we work for the state and uh, we're here to just provide services to the state. But I'm like, yeah, but you have users, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't that important? So I'm, I'm really glad. It's the old but metric. Gonna... Old <laughs> yeah. metric, new metric. Exactly. Cool. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, I didn't question for you on, I think I may have read a Medium article or something. I was diving into some of your content and you were talking about passion and something about passion where how how important having passion is, uh, you know, for success. Or I'm paraphrasing what you said, but I was on a, I was on a hike with my friend, and he was telling me, you know, passion is overrated. Uh, if you just focus on, you know, being comfortable and creating a business or many businesses for yourself, now on the side you can do. He's a musician. Now on the side you can do what you're passionate about. I'm a huge believer in passion. And then I'm reading, I'm a big reader. I actually, I listen to audiobooks. So I was, uh, I'm reading uh, or listening to the new David Goggins uh, Never Finished book. Yeah. And he is a guy that is like, fuck passion. It's overrated. 
it's all about momentum and forward progress. And and I, you and I uh, both are big believers in resilience as well, because I believe that until you get smacked in the face, you don't know what it feels like. And, yeah. and how you show up from that smack is really what, what toughens you up and makes you who you are. But talk to me about this whole thing of passion, because now I'm, I'm listening to both sides and I, I still feel what I feel, but maybe there's another angle that I'm missing. Yeah, I, I think passion. Um, so I don't disagree necessarily with your friend. And, and I, I certainly don't disagree with uh, the great David Goggins. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I it would be a mistake to do so, I think. Yeah, no, he's he's. um. He's he's aggressive, so I mean, yeah. you can't hurt me. Is uh, <laughs> I, I I remember re- I, you want to run through walls. Um, yeah, passion is is something that I think you can find you find internally. And so, look, I, I was uh, I didn't grow up dreaming of um, you know being the the wizard uh, the, of Oz and, and Excel and and a calculator to be an accountant. But I'll tell you what, I became quite impassioned. It, it, you find something. And you find something everywhere that is um, that that really invigorates you, and and if you if you harness it the right way, it can it can kind of be this rocket ship that can take you somewhere um, that you couldn't have otherwise gotten to. Because mm. passion um, passion kind of drives you forth, even when you know a lot of the natural sort of anxieties or um, you know natural signs of try to really be doing this, um, you know they might tell you to stop. And so it's it's a lot easier to be more methodic, and I certainly I certainly preach that here as we try and develop more um, more more of our processes to uh, to kind of transform metric from startup to grown up. And a lot of that's a lot of that's critical. But I can't get people on board to you know want to take over the world and run through walls unless they're passionate. Um, and what we're able to do here, even though I think the world of compliance and track and trace is not necessarily you know tickling and making the hair stand up on anybody's neck or anything like that uh, it really is impactful and when i think about what we are able to to produce from an infrastructure perspective um and build something far greater than ourselves and build something that i think has tremendous meaning uh it's huge and similar to how i felt about being part of a genetics technology business i'm not a I'm not a healthcare professional yeah. Um, but if I, I certainly have pride and it was incredibly meaningful to be able to p- be part of a business that facilitated a tool um, that was so meaningful for people. I do believe metric keeping folks safe or helping keep folks safe, but at least um, and helping provide that infrastructure um, is, is similar in that sense. And I'm incredibly passionate about it. Um, you win, you, you know, you win hearts and minds, not minds and hearts. Um, yeah. And so even though, uh, I, I'm sure folks have had some folks at least have had some challenges with metric or, you know, maybe have some thoughts about track and trace um, the, the, the heart behind uh, what metric has produced has been with the intent of protecting public health and uh, public safety uh, and helping build uh, a legitimate market in, uh, in a, in a way that can be meaningful for folks. Yeah. And no, I, that's a, Beautiful answer. I, I love that, and, I, and I'm in agree. And I'm in agreement. It's that's a great CEO type of answer. That's what what your uh, people want to hear from you because I do believe the metric is making a humongous difference in an industry that was fragmented and and frankly uh, full of people who would be considered drug dealers at that time. Mm-hmm. And now be and I not me because I believe you know cannabis is medicine, but I've sat with 
people who were policymakers in the industry. And I was telling them how difficult it is for people to get consistent medicine. And I had somebody uh, who's a very well-known policymaker in the industry lean over and say, come on, you and I both know it's not really medicine. It was shocking for me. I was like, what, what do you mean? You're, you're setting policy. And uh, they came from the drug and alcohol world. So uh, I'll leave it uh, be uh, for, for a minute. But I think that the pharmaceutical industry is starting to look at uh, what you guys are doing as far as standards go and, and tracking products. And now they feel a little more comfortable as well, starting to dip their toe in this. At least that's what I'm hearing. But also, I wanted to ask you, um, because you're involved in all these different jurisdictions and, and states and you're working uh, with other uh, jurisdictions you mentioned, who's who do you think is doing it right? Like if there is a model in the state, because every state has different laws, who would you say is or one or two? Like this is a pretty good program that other states maybe can model. Um, I I think that. I think it's hard to be able to do that because they're all so different. And it's like, you know, asking somebody to pick all their favorite, their favorite child. Right. Um, but certain people do certain states do, uh, I think do it really well. So you look at uh, the way I kind of look at it is what is like, what is your average selling price? And what is that? What does that look like relative to average? Because what that tells me is that people are producing, you, you have tamped down the illicit market quite a bit. Um, you have because people aren't you know buying as much in the illicit space, which tends to drag down the the retail price. Um, you have created a, a really good equilibrium. A lot of states, and you hear a lot right now about certain states that have oversupply, and and I think you know there's definitely some areas where that's true. There's definitely some areas where it's a little bit overblown. You still have um, really robust marketplaces, and so um, you're going to have natural supply and demand in any industry. So the folks that have done, I think, a really good job at that, um, I, I think, are going to ultimately be the most successful for their constituents. Whether you're, you know, a cannabis consumer, whether you're somebody that doesn't touch cannabis, or whether you're um, somebody in the space. You look at Colorado, for example, as a state that was the first ones to do it. Um, their average retail price is still very high relative to relative to many other states. Um, and so we, I, I think, for what they've done for so long, I certainly think that there's a model there. Um, I look at um, I look at some of the other states as not being like worse, or I look at them as being different. Um, and and I'm, I think Colorado, for the way they've been able to be consistent with the way they've rolled it out, you certainly have to tip your hat. Um, yeah. You look at kind of some of the things in California, and there's definitely been challenges. But that, um, you know, the, 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 the newer regime there um, has really paid close attention to what's happening in the industry. Um, we work very closely with the DCC. Uh, and I think I think what they're doing in a state um, that is so big um, is definitely has some some tremendous opportunity. And, and I mean, we we really appreciate um, the opportunity to continue to partner with them. Uh, a lot of people forget that California is bigger than than the entire country of Canada exactly. um, in terms of population. And so being able to manage that is not trivial. Um, yeah. I, I definitely I definitely pay attention to some of the other states that you get out um, some of the some of the states that have. Um, more recently passed, uh, like New Jersey, for example, they've really kicked off quite well. Um, you see some strong, really strong um, benchmarks uh, in Massachusetts. A lot of states are just really new, um, yeah. but it's hard to say. It's also really hard to compare apples to apples. In, um, for example, uh, Mississippi is a state um, that's brand new, and they're they're they've they've taken a lot of great notes, and I'm really optimistic for that state. Um, some other states, I think, 
started with a bit of a challenge and we're helping them helping them get on board. Um, there's a ton of licensees in Oklahoma, and I think it grew in a way that maybe was a little different than, than it was envisioned, and we're helping them get that together. So, I mean, for them to recognize that and want to get that together, I mean, that's that might be the most impressive of all. Um, and so it's it's brand new. Nobody went to college for this. Most, uh, I mean, we, we don't have, I don't think we have any licensees that have been in the game for longer than 10 years. Uh, and so it's, it, it, it's hard to say anybody's got it figured out and metric included. Um, we've right. certainly had, have had our, our fair share of challenges and, and, and where our works. Um, I think the, the positive and the really, um, inspirational element associated with this space is, is goes back to passion and people really are passionate about when they're passionate about doing things the right way and they're passionate about building something sustainable, I think it will sustain. I think there's a lot of, a lot of folks in the space, um, especially in the beginning that got in because they thought they'd make a ton of money. And for some people, they can, I'm sure. Um, you know, but over the long term, those that will prevail are the ones that are building a meaningful and, and sustainable business for the future. Yeah, it's a, completely agree, and that's that's a really good politically correct answer. You don't you don't you don't pick any of your favorite kids. It's it's no, fine. You, you I love them everybody. all, and I, right. I love I love every <laughs> I love every other state that is not a metric state. Great, Excellent. happy to welcome. Yeah, come on board, come on board. <laughs> it's warm. The water's warm. You know exactly. All right, so I have a few uh, questions to ask all uh, my sure. guests. Uh, uh, please describe your first experience with cannabis. Uh, I was probably 15, um, maybe, maybe younger. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was cannabis, um, but you never know at that age. It was definitely a, an interesting baggie but with, I think a lot of seeds. I think, I think we, there was three of us, four of us. And, um, I don't think it was a great experience. And so, I mean, certainly, certainly not the type of thing that we, that we want to encourage folks to get into now. Um, and, but I, I also think at that time it was kind of dangerous. I mean, who knows? Yeah. It was a who clear bad. So, exactly. um, you know, hopefully we're we're in a position to where folks that are you know that are the proper age and follow all of the state regulations are able to uh, to experience cannabis in a way that that is um, beneficial and safe for them. Great. Um, so I'm a big music guy, and uh, as you can probably see behind me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, do you remember what the very first concert that you ever attended was? Uh, so my dad was a DJ, so I cannot tell you what my very first concert was. I've been to many, many, many concerts. I can tell you, maybe it'd be helpful to be the most memorable concert. Cool. Um, so when I lived in Rhode Island, I was, uh, moved away when I was 16. So I probably was about 16 at the time. And, uh, somehow we found out me, uh, a friend and his sister who was, who was, she was a friend too. Um, and we, uh, we heard that the Foo Fighters were playing at Newberry Comics in Boston. So we're like, we can, let's go. And so we, we pull up to Newberry Comics like super late. I don't remember like when they were supposed to go on. Like there's nobody here. Like, did we get it wrong? And we kind of walked around or drove around the back. And then you saw this line that went, I mean, I have no idea how far this line went, but it definitely wrapped around. And then it was kind of, there was an end kind of near this dumpster. and. So we're like, let's get in line. Let's see what happens. We were in line for maybe 15 minutes and Dave Grohl walks by and, um, and then he walks back by, uh, and I think it was a tailhawk. I don't remember exactly like all the people he was with, but it was, wasn't that, I think he just walked and then, then people like turn around and like, oh yeah, you know, and then he comes back, uh, and he's like, this is a pretty long line. And they had, uh, he had a acoustic guitar 
and they had like a, one of those five gallon water bottles, drumsticks, and uh, three of them sat up, got up on the dumpster and played, uh, I think it was three songs and was like, hey, you guys aren't you guys aren't getting in, but, you know, we'll give you something. And uh, I mean, we were like this close to the dumpster. Um, That's and just, cool. It was it was a really it was an incredible experience. So I would I would definitely say that the fighters uh, right in front of me was one of the more amazing experiences that I've ever had. I love that. It, it, I go to a lot of uh, shows, too, and that those unique experiences are the ones that are most memorable. Like yeah. uh, I had Billy Idol that was singing in the Viper Room, forgot the lyrics to uh, Eyes Without a Face, and I have him like basically singing it off somebody's iPhone. So that that's that's uh, one of those memorable concerts as well. Dave Grohl, great guy. Uh, he does his barbecue in the studio. Uh, he used to prior to COVID every year, and he would cook for everybody, take pictures of everybody, like really, really personal guy. All right, so I'm going to put you on the spot. At, I don't know if this is uh, something you can answer on the on the fly, but if you had uh, to choose only five albums that you can listen to for the next year, what would be those five albums? And I do preface that if somebody asked me, they could change tomorrow uh, or uh, you know, a couple of hours from now. So it's like, I'm just capturing a moment in time right now. What would be, and by the way, if you don't know the album title or anything, you can just give the artist or a song or anything like that, that, that yeah. suffice to. Um, so Foo Fighters, but I'm trying to think of like, which album. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll pick a Foo Fighters album. All right. We'll take okay. Foo Fighters. Um, I would probably say the Beatles revolver, like it's gotta be there. Um, that was, that was an incredible one. Um, uh, offspring. Um, what was the name of that album? The one with come out and play on it. I think it was yeah, called come out and play, wasn't it? I think, yeah, I think, yeah, it was, I think um, it was maybe something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Nirvana, nevermind. Um, one more. I don't know. I, I'd probably have to say, I don't know. Maybe one of those now, now I call music or now that's music or whatever. No, I couldn't do that. <laughs> uh, that's all right. I would say, I mean, if I could put something together with like, I, I can't, it got to be Journey, I guess. Um, right. I mean, you can't, you know, there's just so many, you know, you get, you get a Journey album going. I don't know anybody that could sit still. I, I'm with you, man. Journey's great. Yeah. Uh, all right. What, what has cannabis meant in your life? Um, for me, it's been, I think a little bit of a, it's been a view into a brand new industry that has the opportunity to provide really amazing, positive impacts on society, or it could be the complete opposite. Um, and it's not, that's not, that's not a knock on cannabis itself. It's if we, if we do it wrong, I mean, you look at a lot of things that have emerged lately, and of course, cannabis is in crypto, but crypto probably could be something amazing for society or could go the other way, right? And and just like so many things in life, if you do it the right way, it's beautiful. And if you do it the wrong way, it's disaster. Um, and so being a part of something that has, that we actually have the ability to influence doing it the right way, um, to me is, uh, really has nothing to do with cannabis. It has to do with being able to actually make something meaningful happen in the world. Um, and so for cannabis, that's been... I wouldn't, I wouldn't have guessed that a decade ago. Uh, I wouldn't have guessed that, wouldn't have guessed that probably at any other point in my life, but you get in and you look at like what we can actually do and what some of these really amazing growers are doing. Some great people in the industry, people that are trying to do it the right way. People are trying to destigmatize it. People are trying to help people because it really is medicine. 
Um, you know, you can't go tell, go tell somebody excruciating <laughs> pain stays for cancer. It's not medicine. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's, it, it is, uh, it's, it's, it's meant the opportunity to have, to make an impact on the world. Love that. All right. So this is a final bonus question. It's a little odd for you to answer because of your background. Uh, so you can give a later in life, but the question is, please describe what your room looked like growing up, but because you've moved around a million times, describe a room that you grew up in that you sort of stayed there. Maybe it was, uh, at your, uh, at your sister's house. Uh, when you well, were- at my sister's house, I didn't have a bed. So, I mean, I later got a bed, but I slept on the couch or on the floor. I mean, we it took me, um, I started working at Steak and Shake actually, um, in Tampa and I saved enough money and got a bed and that, but it was, that was a long time. Uh, most of the time through, through high school or actually probably through middle school, I had the same twin bed and my mom got this like burgundy comforter. And I will never forget this thing. Cause it wasn't really a comforter. It was like a thick sheet. Um, and it was like, had like these ribs on it and it was burgundy. And she's like, well, I want you to have burgundy because it's my favorite color. And I hated this. It was ugly as hell. Um, but it was never, I mean, it would have bothered my mom. So I, I never really did anything different with it. Uh, and that was, that was like the only thing that was in my room for, I, I mean, you like mult many moves, many, 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 many moves. Um, and so, yeah, that's. That's what it was like. I would get ne- some- never had a chance for like posters in the walls. Some, like some. So I remember, um, I remember I went to Spencer Gibbs, uh, and, and I would like tear them down. And like, every time you moved, you could like tear off the corners. Um, so I definitely, I remember I had sublime. Uh, I remember I had, uh, a poster for, um, uh, the beastie boys. Um, I had one of Jennifer Love Hewitt for a bit. <laughs> um, that was about it. There wasn't much more. I got, um, I was a Cub Scout for a bit and I made this, uh, I made like a, like a, a wooden boomerang. And for some reason, I remember that was on my wall a lot. I don't know what happened yeah. to that thing, but yeah, that's my room. There wasn't much to it. I mean, we generally lived in like pretty small apartments. Um, a couple of times they were bigger, but generally not much more than that. Cool. Michael. Uh, I want to thank you for your time. Where can people engage with you or find out more about metric or whatever you want to share? Yeah. Metric.com. Um, and, and you can reach me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way to reach me. Um, I am, I'm wide open. So I encourage people to reach out. Um, metric is not the black box of, of your, um, it is, it is definitely, we are, we are active. We are present. If you're having a problem, if you're um, have an idea if, you know, if there's something we can do better and we're not actively making progress towards it, we probably don't know about it. Um, we are, we're deadly serious about, um, turning, turning metric into a delightful experience for everyone. So whatever you got an idea on how it could be better, we want to know. Um, and, uh, you can reach out. You can also email me michael.johnson at metric.com, uh, anytime I do my best to respond as quickly as possible. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Likewise. Thank you. Can't thank you enough. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna. Mom show. 
And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canada podcasters right here on PodConX and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.